0: Uh, Hello, everyone. Um, It's Cheryl Arkell, and today we're actually uh, going a little bit off message with our podcast. This is a standalone. It's a conversation about literary hoax, literary frauds, um, misconceptions, lies, and maybe not. Maybe any all of those things that we're going to discuss today don't matter. So, the expert, I think, um, on this subject is a woman called Caroline Overington, who I know is known to you. Uh, Caroline is a journalist. Uh, she's written for The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald, The Australian, and The Women's Weekly. She has twice received the prestigious Walkley Award. One of them was for a literary hoax, I think. True story. <laughs> yeah. Norma How funny is that? And here Norma Currie. Yeah, here we are today. Caroline also is an acclaimed author. Uh, she's written 12 fiction books. Is it 12 fiction and non-fiction books all up?
2: I think that's right. Yeah. Although like when you have
0: 12 children, eventually you lose count. (laughs) (laughs) You lose count. Um, She has won awards for her fiction, including the Davitt True Crime Writing Prize and the Blake Dawson Prize for Business Literature. Throughout her career, Caroline has profiled some of the world's most famous people. And in September 2018, as a guest host on this very podcast, the Better Reading Podcast, Caroline interviewed Daniel Mallory, best known for his pseudonym, AJ Finn. Now, this is the whole point of the podcast today and why we're here. Um, It's recently been revealed that The Woman in the Window, which is AJ Finn's book, has been less than truthful So the author has been less than truthful about some significant parts of his life, and Caroline is here today to talk about her experience interviewing AJ, because I was in San Francisco at the time, and about whether the private lives of authors should have an impact on their work. I mean, it is such a big subject, isn't it? Look, it's
2: fascinating. And and here's the background. That's exactly right, Cheryl. You were abroad and you asked me to come in and t- and do some of the podcasts that you do with authors. And I remember that we got the call saying that AJ Finn was coming to town. And quite by chance, it happened to be the week you were away. Bad luck you. And, you know, he's a huge international author. His debut book had gone straight to number one um, in the United States, in the UK and here in Australia. And I was excited to meet him. And I knew, of course, ahead of time that his real name was Dan um, and that he was writing under a pseudonym. And he said that he was doing that because he had had a long career in publishing and he didn't want any of his, well, let's say the book bombed. He didn't want any of his, his authors to be able to say, well, what do you know? You wrote a book and it went nowhere. And on the other hand, if it became a huge success, it like, be, it did. like it did, they might be thinking, well, are you really concentrating enough on me or on yourself? So anyway.
0: And also that's quite common.
2: Very common. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people write under a pseudonym, yeah. of course. Women have traditionally had to do it just to get published. Mm-hmm. Um, so he walks in and let me just um, sketch that picture for you. He's, he's incredibly handsome. I don't I don't don't mind saying that at all. He's a very objectively a handsome man. And he's a young man. He's young, he's tall, he's... Um, got a sort of shaggy brunette hair big smile and intensely charismatic so um, one of those people that you know that he walks into the room and you immediately know he's there and you feel very um, happy that he's there very comfortable in his presence you're pleased to see him before you even know him that guy that's he's that guy and uh, I do remember saying to him at, at sort of as the opening of the podcast well how shall I address you should should I call you AJ or should I call you Dan because you know you're here as a writer. And he said, Well, now we're friends. Mm-hmm. You can call me Dan. And straight away, you just like him, right? Well, I just liked him. Other people have said, Well, that just would have been the biggest red flag to me because. See, I think Norma Curry had that. She totally did. She charisma just, in spades. Just oozing charisma. And what's really interesting is when you find charisma, You very often do find other character flaws because we don't think of charisma as a, as a character flaw. And I've always thought that charisma was massively overrated as a virtue. You know, when you think about the people who have charisma, they're trying to sell you something. (laughs) Usually they're trying to get you on side. And, and why would that be? Like, what is the need to be liked? What is the need to impress? What, what's at the base of that? Usually, a sense of insecurity, a sense of I'm not enough. So there is a red flag there. And, and, and over the weekend um, when I was talking to some people about this, I talked to a psychologist about it, the Alfred Deakin Professor of Psychology at Deakin University, and he said to me, look, he can't say anything about Dan the individual because he's never met him. But he said, when I study people who are narcissists or who have a narcissistic personality disorder or some sort of antisocial personality disorder, you will often find charisma and lies. And then when you find charisma and lies together, you do tend to find other acts of dishonesty so it can be fraud so we would have seen that with bell gibson do you remember from
0: the whole pantry i do that was a very so recent fraud
2: pretending to have cancer and and raising money and not sending that money on to charity um you also may find plagiarism and of course nobody has um has accused dan of plagiarism but the new york times on a on the weekend ran a very long piece comparing his books to others which i guess you could compare a lot of books to others. You could you could compare Shakespeare to other works and, and it's just...
0: I thought that was a thin thread. I read that article too yes. and I thought that that was a very thin thread because, because you so could many do books that, yeah, you are like other
2: books and, and as they say, there's no new ideas.
0: Yeah, there's no. <laughs> and I think you could pick up any book and if you went through, sifted through many, many other hundreds of books, you'll find like plots. Right.
2: But, I mean, maybe we should talk about the kind of lies that he's accused of telling. Yeah. So he, because his book is fiction. So it's but not before, like we can say there's anything wrong with his that's book. That's
0: right. That's right. So I want to talk about just, and I'll only do Australian literary hoax because there have been many, but I want to go back uh, and I do want to start at the Earn Malley affair because they are different types of hoaxes and I want to, I want to see what your take is on that. So if you look at Ern Malley, for instance, um, which happened back in 1944. The most so, famous of all. The, the, the first, perhaps. The first, and really the most famous of all globally. Yes, you know, so that really. Is really quite famous. Really quite famous, where two men pretended they were a poet, Ern Malley, and they started writing poetry and sending it in to an editor at a literary magazine because they were angry because their work hadn't been published individually. Now, that is completely, that's a different type of hoax, isn't it? Because it's a deliberate Literary fraud. It is. Because the work itself is almost a hoax.
2: Exactly. So then you have, and there's been a a long and proud tradition of this, you have people pretending to be something that they're not for a reason Mm. to, to show up somebody or to um, expose some kind of bias or to uh, make the point that certain people are getting published and others are not. This is very, um, this is a very different thing to lying about having cancer. Exactly. Very different. It's an intellectual exercise if you will.
0: Yeah, that's what I thought. So that that's interesting because the work here is a hoax and the person, Ern Malley is a hoax. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Okay. Then I'm going to move on to Helen Demidenko, Helen Darvel, Helen Dale.
2: Right, who wrote The Hand That Signed the Paper.
0: And I've got to say, um, I read that in manuscript back when and I loved it. Okay. And I feel that it stands up well and truly as a standalone fiction book. So tell us, what was the lie there? Well, it did
2: win the Miles Franklin, it didn't did. it? So there were yeah. some people who who definitely agreed that it was the best book of the year, best Australian book of the year.
0: A lot of people thought that. Yes.
2: But the difficulty here is that Helen Demudenko was, in fact, born Helen Darville. In Queensland. S- in Queensland. And so she was pretending um, by dressing in sort of these strange peasant costumes and wearing long blonde plaits that she was... Um, Ukrainian. Ukrainian and that and that she had some personal connection to a Holocaust story, which seemed not to be true. Um, and She when, was
0: very young at the time. She was too.
2: very young and also it was just prior to the internet. So, of course, if you tried that on today, like if I turned up tonight on, on an, on the ABC with long blonde plaits pretending to be Heidi. Well, my school friends would be on Facebook in 10 minutes and, yes. and saying, hey, hang on, that's Caroline from Melton. <laughs> what are you talking about? So it, she was able to, to get away with it. For a period of time. For a year, I think be- she got away Because with it. Her, her school friends did recognise her as Helen Darvill and did sort of wonder what it was all about. But Australians are funny and Queenslanders are funnier still. They tend to mind their own business, don't they? Well, whatever yeah. she's up to, <laughs> it's not really my business. And so it took a while for the story to blow. And when it did, there was a lot of anger towards her. And I think there still is. She now occasionally does some work for News Limited, where I work. She works sometimes for The Australian. She has worked for David Leonhelm, the senator, as yes. a public relations person, and she writes fiction now. Um, but I still think the idea... That you've dudded people, that you've deceived them, that you've deliberately set out to make them believe something about you that is not true. We as human beings don't like because we like to take people at face value. But how does that affect her work? Well, the difficulty is it doesn't, you can't make a judgment or any, any different judgments about the work or you shouldn't. But I think that the, um, the affection in which she was held as um, a young migrant who had come to Australia and was and writing beautifully in English and so on, has we lose some of that because we now know that actually she took us for a bit of a ride and nobody likes to be taken for a ride. And so it's very difficult to come back from that because the audience is thinking, well, you deceived us, so mm. I'm not sure that I would like to feel warmly and buy the books of mm. somebody who has deceived me.
0: Mm. Do you know, I, I feel as though in a way that we gave her a very hard time Who's the we?
2: (laughs) Australians. I mean, you know, it ruined her
0: career for a very long time. Well, you could argue that she ruined her own career. I mean, why not just write the book
2: as fiction?
0: Yeah. Maybe she got bad advice. And this is also, too, what I think. Does the publishing process itself, because we're so interested um, in the backstory of the author, create people like this, create situations like this? Why can't we just go a long story, go... You know, follow on the story alone. Why do we need you know what it's like when you submit a manuscript or you know publishers are as interested in the author as they are in the work?
2: Well, especially now with the rise of identity
0: politics, mm. because um, if you talk to
2: um, uh, anyone out there who's submitting a manuscript, they will say that, yes, there there is a feeling at the moment that you know, as Lionel Shriver said in her famous, speech at the Brisbane um, Writers' Festival. It's not just that you can't write from the point of view of somebody else. It's also now that we want to hear from people that we haven't heard from before. And that's a good thing.
0: Do you know, I can't get my head around that. Is That's called cultural appropriation, right? Is that well, what we're talking about? Well, there's actually
2: two things there. So yeah. cultural appropriation is if I pretend to be an Aboriginal Australian telling the story of my family growing up in the central west. Yes. Well, what right do I have to do that? Because it's so far outside my experience. Now, I'm, there are some people who say I shouldn't be allowed to do it. There are, Whereas my feeling is, I should absolutely be allowed to do it, and I'll be judged on the quality of the work, which will doubtless be poor because mm. I would have no idea about that experience. And unless you go out there and try in some way to absorb the feelings of others, I'm
0: still not sure that that kind of book is best written by me. In fact, I'm convinced but it's okay. not. But I, I think by me. you know, all right. I mean, in, Indigenous Australians. I mean, of course, you're not going to have that experience. But you know, people are writing but their about
2: stories have been told by white people for a very long time. Do And they're they're pushing back against that. So let's say, for example, the Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith is about an Aboriginal Australian written by a white man and for many years considered a seminal Australian work, an Mm. important Australian work. Well, would you be able to do that today? There is a feeling out there that you shouldn't be allowed to do that today because really what businesses of I mean, these stories should be owned by the people who lived them as opposed to the sort overseers. Look, of right I agree. Overseers.
0: Okay. I agree, particularly when it, it comes to people that, that, uh, you know, have trouble being heard anyway because, you know, there's a barrier. Um, but what about when you're writing about, you know, um, being, growing up in Italy and you're not Italian? People I, do that all the time. They do do it all the time. And there are and characters in the books where, you know, you can't just write about being Caroline Overington from Victoria. <laughs> that would be
2: very dull for everybody, wouldn't it? But, and, and the, one of the, the better known examples from recent years is, is the, um, is the detective agency. So, yes. so that, is written by a man. Yes. And it, the subject or the main character is a Botswana woman. Mm-hmm. So, and he's pulled it off hugely successfully. People love that book. Mm-hmm. We've had him in for a podcast. Right. What's his
0: name? It's it And nobody at me. that
2: time was yeah. saying, you have no right to say that. So this is a new argument. It's quite different from the idea of... Um, minority publishing. So the other idea is that certain groups of people, white men in particular, have been able to get their books published for millennia and other groups have always struggled. That's right. And there is a movement now to be hearing more from minority groups, so Mm -hmm. more from gay writers, more from writers of colour, more from Indigenous Australians. And Indigenous Australian stories, I think, now are almost only told by Indigenous Australians. That seems to be the way we're headed and that seems to be what the the country is now comfortable with. Mm -hmm. So there are two... very different issues. So when it comes to the idea of the identity of the author, yes, it has become very important. It has become very important that we know something about the background of the author, because people are now very concerned about who is telling this story.
0: Mm. And who is concerned? Are the readers concerned? Yes, I think so. I think... um, Well, I don't know about that, because we put out Um, here at Better Reading, we put out the question to our readers last week in light of us recording this podcast. And I asked them that question. And we'll go through some of those. But overwhelmingly, actually, we might go through some of them now. Um, A lot of them said, generally speaking, no, this is Kel. No author's, uh, an author's private life is of little interest to me. But lying about cancer is absolutely appalling. So she's differentiating or he's differentiating those two. Lying about death and suicide is appalling. It doesn't sit right with me to encourage me and to, to support me knowing about the author. Um But here we go. A lot of them, and this is Paul, I think I've said it before, I think lying by cancer is quite reprehensible, but also at issue is the fact that his lies helped him rise through, oh, this is AJ Finn, through the publishing ranks at the expense of minorities with more qualifications than him. Lots of authors on Twitter are now speaking about him and his bad behaviour. I just don't think that blatant dishonesty that harms others should be rewarded with millions of dollars. Okay, there's one. I can't, for the life of me, this is Linda. I can't for the life of me see how an author's private life is any business of the reading public. It's their work that is of interest. Anything else is curiosity. And there's a lot of those. If we're talking about works of fiction and not an autobiographical work, this is Linda, then the author's private life is of little interest to me. I think that this is Amy. Uh, I think the reader doesn't want to feel duped by the author unless it's in the pages of their book. Sometimes the author's back to story can be a little bit like packaging.
2: I kind of agree with that. Well, see, now that's all very interesting because there are some people there making... Uh, well, they're differentiating between the author's lies. So he has lied about having cancer, yes. and clearly, he's to just to be clear for your listeners. He says that he did that because he was actually suffering from terrible mental health problems, and he felt that embarrassed about his mental health problems, and so he told people that he had brain cancer instead of saying that he had um, depression and bipolar. Um, I, I'm not sure I believe that. I think mm. that I, I think it's more likely that um, if he has let people believe that he had brain cancer, then there's something else going
0: on. Uh, Was it in your article over the weekend in The Australian where you, did you talk to a a specialist about depression and lies? Was that your article? Yes, exactly. What did he
2: say or she say? Well, Patrick McGorry, who's one of Australia's eminent um, researchers in the field of mental health, was very concerned by the idea that firstly people are using depression and mental health as a way to excuse all kinds of miserable behaviour. So, you know, you do something wrong these days and straight away you put up your hand and you say, oh, I have depression or I, ha- mm-hmm. I was suffering from bipolar. Um, and one of the things that Dan has said was he doesn't remember a lot of the, th- the lies that he told. And again, um, the idea, that, like, let's say you have a genuine mental health problem associated with memory loss. So let's say dementia. Well, you forget where you left your keys, you forget people's names, you don't just forget the lies you told. <laughs> so, no. <laughs> so there is this idea that no longer, and and you might remember too, do you remember when Don Burke, the celebrity gardener, was accused of all kinds of... um uh, poor behaviour, and then he went on on a current affair with Tracy Grimshaw, and he said, "Well, I think I've got undiagnosed Asperger's," and straight away. The and that au- led me to
0: be a predator, <laughs> right? And
2: straight away, the autism community bounced back mm. and said, "Well, you know, that's not fair."
0: No,
1: you, and it's you, not
2: true. And it's not true, and you can't you can't excuse away your behaviour by saying mental health. So on one hand, it's fantastic that we now all talk about mental health and we talk about depression. Lives are definitely being saved by people prepared to talk about suicidal thoughts and how depressed and unhappy they are feeling. Are you okay? That kind of thing. But on the other hand, I think... We're, we're moving into a kind of society where no one will take responsibility for anything. You know, you can't ever just say anymore, I messed up, I, I've made a mistake.
0: Speaking about mental health, let's talk about Trump because yes. in my research on the weekend, and this is relevant, and, you know, I mean, there are those that accuse me of bringing up Trump in almost every um, podcast and what am I going to do in two years' time when hopefully he's not there, but that's not true. This is I think is appropriate. you've got at least six years to yeah. worry about that. <laughs> oh, don't say that, that's depressing. Um, but... There is one of the articles that I read um, for my research for this podcast is that we are so used to lies. I mean, that man lies almost in every word that, you know, there there isn't an iota of truth that comes out of his mouth. I mean, the New York Times are fact-checking almost everything he says and it's like 90% of what he's saying is, is lies. And we, do we accept them? Do we have a choice? Do we? And so this whole thing about fake media, um, he's, and about him being totally fake. Now, that is, I think, relevant to this conversation now because we're are we more accepting of lies. Yes, definitely. They've become a greater part of the general conversation. Yeah. Whereas the idea that
2: telling lies um, is just the wrong thing to do. Seems to have slipped a little. So it was interesting to me because um, when I talked to that psychologist for the article on the weekend, and I made the point that Dan hasn't tried to raise money for his cancer. So he's not ripping anybody off. It's not fraud.
0: No, but he got a two million advance for his book.
2: Right, but that was for the book. That's not, you know, that's not for having cancer. So he's not, it's not, so he's not, what I'm saying is his lies about having cancer are not designed to con anyone. He's not trying mm. to defraud anyone. He's not trying to, you know, get your money out of you. In which case, does it matter? Does it matter that he lied about it? And when I spoke to the psychologist, he said to me in in quite a startled way, "Does it matter?" When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At nile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Of course it matters. It matters morally. The Mm -hmm. way you deal with people in your general life, ethical dealing with other people, is a fundamental platform of human civilization. And if we let that go, if we just decide... It doesn't matter anymore whether people are telling the truth because, hey, no one got hurt. But to so the He's US, We're not trying to rip you off. It's just a bit of fun. But we're seeing it every day through right. the US presidency. Then it, it, that's it. It absolutely, definitely matters that people tell lies. It's a nebulous concept because we're talking about morality. We're talking about ethics, and everybody's morality and ethics will be different. It used to be a flat-out prohibition. Don't tell lies. Mm. But actually, you know, last night I went and saw um, Jordan Peterson, the Canadian philosopher, who talks a lot about lying, and he said in his um, address at the Opera House, it's almost impossible for people to tell the truth anymore because we don't have any idea what the truth is. The world is so corrupted and there are so many different um, competing narratives that we have lost sight of what truth is. The best you can do is try not to say something you know to be wrong. So to, to try not to deliberately lie is about the best you can do.
0: So when we have a look at um, Dan Mallory or A.J. Finn, if you want to call him, versus let's say yeah. Helen Darvel or Demi Denko or Dale, Or your favourite Norma, who you love. I want to get on to Norma. <laughs> Norma's a bit separate, right, because those lies were very different. She wasn't writing fiction. But let's just compare A.J. Finn and Helen Demidenko, Darvold, Dale, had her. It was back when lies weren't as acceptable, wasn't it? Is that absolutely, why? Absolutely,
2: absolutely. I think that's a very astute point. I yeah. think that's our our cultural um, acceptance of lying has shifted to the point, and perhaps because people occupying the highest offices in the land have been daily exposed for falsehoods. Um, that we're more willing to give people a pass. And probably also we've seen more literary frauds. We saw James Frey and Norma Currie and half a dozen others. They're nonfiction, yeah. Right. So... Then at the time, it seemed like what a shocking thing to do—to deceive mm. the judges, to deceive
0: the publishers, to deceive your readers. Whereas now we're like, meh, that again. <laughs> well, it is like meh that yeah. again because HarperCollins have announced that they will be publishing his second book, and that his identity and what he talks about has nothing to do with his fiction work.
2: And there's an and there's a movie coming out as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are financial imperatives there too. Let's not let's not forget about those. I mean, this has been an immensely successful novel. Novel, debut mm. novel with a second book likely to sell just as well. Mm. Huge film coming out starring Amy Adams, everybody's mm. favourite. So there's a lot financially riding on it too and as the point has been made. We may not like the fact that he has lied. And I personally think that lying about having cancer is a terrible thing to do because there are people who have cancer who would happily give it to you if you want it so much.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, but also and, he lied. you <laughs> said his mother was dead and that his brother suicided. I mean, they're well, terrible lies.
2: Well, they're terrible lies because it's a terrible thing to wish upon yourself. And they're not true. And a terrible thing to wish upon those people. But also if you do, if you have just lost your mother, mm. if your brother did commit suicide, mm. you don't find that a minor matter at all. No. That,
0: that's an awful... But unlike Helen Dale, he's going to be forgiven for this in light of the, our cultural climate where lying seems to be more acceptable.
2: And also because it he, he doesn't relate directly to his work because her lies related or her deception related directly to her work mm-hmm. whereas this he's a guy who's 10 years ago for some reason which i think we have to acknowledge comes from a place of pain i don't i don't think all bad behavior comes from a place of pain mm-hmm. and and i think nobody goes around saying that they have brain cancer if they're entirely well and happy and well adjusted it's it's there's we're dealing with somebody here who has um, a deep-seated feeling that he's not enough. He's not enough somehow mm. and he has to make up things about himself to make him seem more interesting or fascinating. And that's, I mean, you can say, oh, well, so he's just a bullshitter, you know, let's just ignore him. But I think that's worth some sympathy too because it must be a terrible mm. thing to have to be. Um, but because he's told these lies, is not directly related to his work, you're right. He'll get away with
0: it. Mm, he will get away with it. Okay, so I want to talk about Norma Corey. Yeah, because, I know, because that, you loved her. <laughs> I loved you her. loved her. And that touched both of us. So you and I um, didn't know each other at the time. No, we didn't. And so we were. We, we didn't, uh, our only common connection there was Norma. So I want to tell you how Norma, uh, I mean, so Norma uh, published a book, for those of you who don't know, her name is Norma Corey, and she published a memoir um, about apparently her own experience of growing up in Jordan. And, uh, um, the, one of the characters in the book, Dahlia, he's meant to be her friend, um, is, falls in love with a guy and ends up being, um, a victim of honour killing, right? Um, so that book, uh, sold its socks off in this country. It was published <laughs> sure By Random House. Um, and this is my version because you're looking at it a different way and we'll get to, to your version. Um, so, All I knew, I was um, head of marketing at the time, I knew that it was a bestseller, I read it, it moved me to my core and I am a face value kind of person. I tend to love people as I meet them. Um, and interestingly, she had been in and out of the publishing house to see the publishers and not me. But I happened to be walking past reception one day when she was sitting there waiting. And she had tremendous presence, as you know. She's very beautiful and she had charisma and she had all those traits that we were talking about earlier. Um, and I stopped to speak to the receptionist and she said to me in Arabic, hello, I'm Norma Khoury, you are a fellow Arab. Like just on the basis of looking at you? Just on the basis of looking at me. And she said, aren't you going to come over and say hello?
2: In Arabic?
0: All in Arabic. And
2: you were completely smitten from that moment on, weren't you? From that
0: moment on, she was waiting for the publisher and they were going out to dinner and they invited me to join them. She invited me to join them. So from that moment on, she was working me, if you like, if that's what, and hook, line and sinker. So we had a beautiful dinner and I believed every single word um, and then I, she told me that she was um, hankering for a home-cooked meal, that she felt like having some, you know, Lebanese food or Arabic food or whatever it was. Um, and I said, well, why don't you come to my place for dinner? So a couple of nights later, I can't remember the timing, she comes over with a whole lot of people from Random House and there was about, you know, I don't know, eight of us at dinner. And at one point I was in my kitchen doing some prep and she walked in and she asked me if I've ever had sex and what was it like. And meanwhile, she was married with two children. (laughs) And did you... Were you... Again, I, I I bought it. You know, I I responded. I cooked her a beautiful meal. She sent me a beautiful pen the next day with a note. And so when that story, there were whispers that things weren't quite right with her, and that there was certain people accusing her of not being who she was. And that happened before you and Malcolm broke the story that we were hearing whispers at Random House. Um, but I didn't believe them and a lot of people didn't believe them because I was so taken by her.
2: Well, that's so interesting because... Tell me how you came to the story. Well, I was working in the United States at the time and, as you say, we had heard whispers out of Jordan yes. that she was not who she said she was. There were a number of women's groups in Jordan who were offended by her book, by mm. the idea that they lived the, under the boot, as it were, and... Um, and they had started agitating. And we very quickly uncovered the fact that she was, um, n- not born in Jordan, that she was an American mum of two, um, and that this was, this book was a fraud. Um, what was really interesting though was when I went out finally years later to meet her, Because we, we wrote the story without her cooperation, you know. Of course. the, The idea that she had also perhaps, um, been involved in some fraudulent activity too came up. But then years later, I, I got in contact with her or she contacted me, one or the other. As you say, she's very charismatic. She's very beautiful. And very beautiful. And I went out to Chicago to meet her, um, and I was responsible, myself and, and Malcolm Knox, for unmasking her for, for the end of her literary career, for the exposure of her to the world. And she invited me to her home and she cooked a meal and she was incredibly funny and really warm. And I left there and the, the funny thing is, Cheryl, I left there thinking, I know you're a con woman yeah. and I still really like you. Yeah, she was. Yeah. Maybe the best I've ever encountered.
0: Yeah, there is something about her. Yeah. Now, she, again, um, she was pre-lie um, uh, time, if you like. She was pre, because it was, what, back in 2005, I think.
2: It was, there, there was internet, but not in the same way. Yeah, so, there wasn't Twitter, there wasn't Facebook. No, there wasn't... No. So the kinds of things that would happen now... So somebody would simply put up a picture of her at Chicago High School yeah. and say this is her and that would be it, bang, it would be over. Yeah. But in those days, that kind of thing didn't happen.
0: But she, so that story, your story and Malcolm's story, made the front page of our biggest, you know, the biggest... Uh, the City Morning here, Herald, the and the age
2: at the time, yes. Yeah,
0: so that was really big news, front page news. Mm-hmm. And I remember at Random House we were all bracing ourselves for that mm-hmm. because, you know, it, it was big news. But in a way, she still got away with it, didn't she? She's not, she hasn't continued as a writer. She
2: hasn't. And, and when I met her in Chicago, she was working as a used car saleswoman, which I just <laughs> thought was, you know, there couldn't be anybody more suited to the profession, really. Um, I, no, I don't think she did get away with it because I, she still earned she, that money and she kept that she, money. The, yes, but there's money, but there are far more valuable commodities than money. And, I mean, money is a cheap currency. It really is. Don't do anything for money ever. It's, mm. it's the cheapest currency there You're is. You're telling me. It really is cheap. <laughs> and I just feel she lost your respect and your genuine love and she will never partake of a meal with you again. no. And that, to me, is a far greater loss than anything else she may have suffered. Because mm. if you lose the respect and affection of genuine people who wish you well because of some silly lie that you've told, that's a human tragedy.
0: Mm. I just, it, it blows me away that she never wrote that as fiction. And how would we have perceived it? But again, I look at the publishing industry and I think, do we create people like that? We're so desperate for Yes, because people. we wanted
2: the ring of authenticity around it. We, we wanted did. to be able to say, "Look, this girl who's escaped from the Middle East—you mm. know, this Jordanian princess whose whose friend died in an honor killing." You know, that's far better than being able to say, "Look, here's Caroline from Melton, who's written a book about <laughs> a Jordanian princess who's I died think you're in you're not a, being fair in on a, Melton. <laughs> a, a, no, Melton's a wonderful place, but do you know what I mean? It's like, well, if, if you can if you can have that authenticity about it. Then people feel like this is—it's almost like reading a memoir, and 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 it—it it wasn't real. Sadly, no, it wasn't real. No,
0: it wasn't real at all. At all. She
2: did a good job though. She did a oh, really good job. Someone did tell me that the river in Jordan was in
0: the wrong place. Yes, <laughs> and that—I mean, I remember going to a few events with her, um, and she was a great speaker. Yeah, she was really she, good up yeah. there as well. She was great all round. Have you
2: seen the? There's a YouTube if you get a chance of her um, at the Byron Bay Writers Festival, I think, and the audience is just half of them want to marry her and the Mm. other half want to take her home and give her a home-cooked meal. (laughs) Like I did, yeah, Yeah, absolutely. She definitely, she has them in, she's warm, she's funny, she's lively, she's shy but at the Mm. same
0: time a bit confident, a bit Mm. cocky. It's Mm. just... Yeah, it's charisma. Mm, it is. It is that. Anyway, so um, so there goes Norma. Although she, I think she had been wanted for other misdemeanors. I she mean, had. she's been lying for a long time. She had, and that's what I think that
2: psychologist was saying to me as well over the weekend. That where you find charisma, and you find lies, you will often find other behaviors that fall into the category of dishonesty mm-hmm. um, and he didn't give me this example but later on I thought Bill Clinton very charismatic person an obvious liar and the the behaviors would be the infidelity so which is a, which is a betrayal of trust and a betrayal of vows and so you tend to find these things cluster together and so it is okay to say oh well who cares that he lied but if you find somebody in that like that in your life if you if you find that road it often points points to Rome that that's the point that if you are if you are dealing with somebody in your life who is is displaying some of these narcissistic disorders or behaviors it's very likely that there are some other behaviors within the category of fraud type behaviors in that same person so be Mm. wary
0: I will. I will be very wary. I am a sucker for um, for a, a great story. But anyway, and usually they are really good storytellers. Okay, back to AJ. I want to read, because um, our audience, um, our readers, are uh, really engaged in this question. Um, so, And I promised I'd read out some of their comments. So Marina, she says, their private life is their business. This is regarding AJ Finn. I read to be informed or entertained... Sometimes both. I don't care about the gender of the writer, for that matter, as long as the book is well written and I don't feel like I have wasted money on a book.
2: Okay. But do you care if somebody in your private life lies to you? I care. Most people care.
0: Yeah. I mean, it has certainly devalued that book for me.
2: Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting because I still think the book is a great read. I just. Sure, but hasn't was, it? He didn't really lie to us at Better Reading. I mean, maybe a little bit. Like when he came in, he didn't tell us that his mum was dead because she would, you know, he was traveling in Australia with her, so it would have been a bit difficult. And he didn't tell us here that he had cancer. And so. He, or his brother had suicide. Or no, he in fact talked about his brother. And so I guess we feel like we've escaped a little bit. I do feel a bit bruised, although. I mean, the only thing I can think that maybe he lied to us about was the Oxford, that, you know, he had a PhD from Oxford. He did go to Oxford, but maybe he didn't finish. So it's an interest. I mean, I feel like, is it possible that as a much younger man he felt the need to lie about things to make himself more interesting? And he doesn't anymore. He's grown up and he's been to therapy and he's sorted out his problems and he doesn't have to lie anymore. And then
0: they catch up with you.
2: And, and that's Do you know, but sad. I mean the,
0: the, the lies, what's extraordinary I think about AJ's lies, okay, and, you know, I mean we can, let's go back to Helen or even Norma, but with AJ to say that your brother suicided or your mother died, they are things that people are going to find out very quickly that yeah, aren't true. They really are. They're, they're, they're a different type of liar. They, they really are. And,
2: and that to me is really fascinating because, well, I mean, I suppose you could recover from cancer. I mean, I guess you could say sure. that you had cancer and get all the sympathy and the care. That's like a Munchausen's yeah. syndrome. Um, and then you could recover, I guess. But um, to suggest that your mum is dead and then, you know, bring her out to Australia to show her a kangaroo <laughs> <laughs> is, as you say... But also let's say you're a young man and you're just starting out in publishing and you're a bit insecure and you have various psychological issues and you, you have told a lie and you have said, you know, my mum passed away. How do you, how do you walk back from that? Mm-hmm. How do you, like then 20 years later or 10 years later, you're in Australia with a best-selling novel on your hands, you've got everything you ever wanted, you're the success that you always wanted to be, somewhere in your mind you know they're coming for you. Mm-hmm. You know those lies are coming back. Mm-hmm. They're coming for you.
0: I want to know and, how his mother feels and how his brother feels. Yeah. Well,
2: the reporter at the New Yorker who um uncovered the the scandal if if that's the word um went and saw the mum and, um, when he approached her in the driveway, she just said, I'm not doing this. Mm. And walked up to the house.
0: I thought that was the dad. Or maybe he approached her. The but... dad
2: did talk a bit. He was, yeah. the dad did sort of say, Oh, I don't really understand what you're saying there. Like, he didn't seem to really know. Mm what dan may have said to colleagues
0: which is probably right like mm. I mean, they may not
2: have they known. may not have known
0: yeah they may not have known okay I'm, I'm going to read out some more if they write fiction this is k if they write fiction then no i find they are writing non-fiction memoirs or other stories based on real life events that they claim to have experienced, and it turns out to be bullshit <sighs> then hell yeah um bianca cola i know it shouldn't affect me but it does it Applies not only for authors, but also musicians, actors, and other artists. It's not their private lives per se that I care about, it's their opinions and credit. I won't support racist, homophobe, xenophobia, etc. Hers is quite interesting, and Bianca's um, an active um, commenter on our site. She talks about all sorts of things, like if we find out, for instance, an author has had been charged with sex, sexual assault and he's written a fiction book. Do you still go ahead? Does that alter your view of him or the work? Or certainly of him or her? That's a
2: fascinating topic. And indeed, a friend of mine, um, Ashley Wilson, who's currently writing a book um, on a very similar vein, what do you do when you find out that artists and creative people are terrible that's, people? that's happening. Because it's very often the case. That's mm. right. We've seen it a few times this year in Australia where uh, a couple of little girls um complained about the way that their libertarian parents mm. treated them um, back in the day, yet we regard their work as astounding. Mm. And, of course, you've got men like Picasso and you've got a lot of um, male artists through history, terrible people, astonishing work. And so how do we... Um, how do we? Are we still allowed to enjoy the creative
0: fruit of a damaged mind? Do you know who we need here for that conversation? Sebastian Smee. Oh, he's outstanding. He'll be able to talk to us because about Because he is
2: that. an art critic. Yes. And also, I think, a very perceptive person when it comes to human nature.
0: It's very difficult. I'd to love l- to know his view on that.
2: W- well, it's, it's very difficult mm. to look at a beautiful piece of art, beautiful work of art, and and not be moved to tears simply because you now know something about the artist mm. it's
0: the art Stands. It does. It does stand. And it's interesting, does the work stand? Anyway, there's so many comments. We haven't been able to go through all of them. Um, this has been great conversation, Caroline. I've really enjoyed it. Um, I think that you and I could almost be experts on literary fraud. We've (laughs) we've been touched by it. What a terrible shame. (laughs) (laughs) We've been touched by it twice Mm. in our careers. We really have. And you know what? We will see it again. And we will see it again. Thank you so much for chatting with us today.